How long have you been in TNE now? Since 2007, I think. Yeah. Were you on Gator or GBET? Both. You were on both. <laughs> <laughs> and JLTV. Oh, you were on JLTV. GCSS. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. So I've kind of gone where the demand was. Yeah. So Gator, I was selected for that position. Right, I was right. the chief developmental right. tester at GCSS. But they needed help at JLTV because they lost all their testers. This is what we were talking about a little bit earlier. Test and evaluation, or T&E, assists in the risk management process involved in developing, producing, operating, and sustaining systems and capabilities. T&E provides additional information on system capabilities and limitations to the acquisition community to improve the system's performance and optimize its operational use and sustainment. It also provides an opportunity for program managers to learn about any technical or operational limitations of a system so they can be resolved prior to production and fielding. The TNE process is an integral part of the systems engineering process and today I have the pleasure of speaking with the Command's Testing and Evaluation Lead, Dr. Karen McGrady. Thank you so much for making time to come on the show. Thank you. Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you ended up coming to this acquisition community? So I'll start just with my government uh, service. Okay. Uh, so um, I was I hold a, a bachelor's and PhD in chemistry with a specialization in um, synthesis, design, and characterization of new inorganic complexes as well as high-performance polymers. Oh, okay. When I was postdocing, um, I was supporting companies like DuPont and Hughes Research, mm -hmm. and I, I, although I love that kind of work, it's very esoteric in many ways. It's hard to see the the end result right, right. and take it all the way to that that item that is useful to many people, right? Although I would say I, I had a good, a good time as a research chemist. But at that time, I, I started to entertain the idea of looking for something else. And I, I interviewed and was offered a position at Naval Surface Warfare Center in, okay. in Dahlgren as a scientist. So did that for a while, right? A couple of years doing that, really not T&E <laughs> at, at that point either, it was largely research. I have a couple of Navy patents. And it came to pass that uh, there was a need to support urgent needs and actually it was, was Marine Corps Systems Command programs oh, okay. at the time. Okay. And this was mostly global war on terror right, uh, right. time frame. So I uh, started to do some of that work. I'm also a materials scientist, so I would test materials for this program office. And it just occurred to me I really wanted to, to do work that was closer to the operators. I wanted to actually interact with soldiers, airmen, uh, sailors, and Marines, and understand what their issues were and their concerns were, and to be able to translate science and technical stuff in a way that they could use that operationally. So that being said, um, after doing some of that support work, I got an offer from uh, a joint program office with a large portfolio to be their test director. It was gonna be a high grade and it was gonna get me smack in the middle of that kind of situation. I said yes. So 
I started my life as a tester, an acquisition tester. I hope that answers the question. It, well, it sure does. I mean, it takes you from the world of where you were conducting research, which is great. You kind of get to see what's under that thing, uh, <laughs> so to speak. So I'm trying to translate all the scientific yeah, no, jargon okay. here. I'm sorry. No, no, no. But you, you take that and you move it to actually what does it do for somebody. Right. And, and I think, uh, maybe I'm ahead of myself, but their losses certainly are gain to have your professionalism and your expertise <laughs> here. So let's dive right in. What is test and evaluation? We all hear T&E and, you know, the common person would say, okay, well, I need a new truck. I got it. Sounds right. great. Run down the road. But there's a lot that goes on between the time that somebody says, I need this capability and the time you actually get it in the hands of Marines. Right. So test and evaluation really is, in my mind, um, being able to answer key questions, right? So it is the means that we answer those questions. Mm -hmm. For us, from a military perspective, we need to be able to answer, does a system, um, is a system capable of completing the mission under which it was designed, right? right? right. Another thing we want to answer is, if a marine or a sailor or airman or soldier calls upon that system in 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 battle in whatever their mission is will it work every single time each right. and every time that that uh, person um, calls upon it that kind of goes to some of the aspects of things like reliability and but those are the questions right so so then what has to happen is the tester will design a means to answer those questions. So that's kind of the folksy way of referring to test and evaluation. Yeah. It's much more complicated than that. Oh, I have no doubt in my mind and having observed a few <laughs> test plans and even been at right. some test events, I, I, can, I can attest to some of that. So no offense to our friends in industry, but often at times they, you know, they bring capabilities to bear with a certain stamp on it that says, oh yeah, this is going to do X, Y, and Z. Right. And our test and evaluation community has to dissect it a little bit, yes. peel the onion back and, you know, make sure that, as you said, it's not going to work just once, right. but it's going to work when we most need it. Right. So with that said, and then there's various aspects of the test community, what's a typical week look like for you? I'm no longer a chief developmental tester okay. or a programmatic tester. Okay. Well, and I, I'm going to actually say that and then call myself a liar because, in fact, <laughs> I am supporting a project that does not have a, a tester okay. right now. I digress. So in my job, though, there's kind of three areas. There is that program support and special project support. Mm -hmm. So if there's a question... Um, where a program office is having difficulty sometimes with a higher level uh, t and &E oversight body such as dot and &E. I'll usually be asked by the, by the commander or, or by the ED to take a look at the data, look, take a look at the reports, get familiar and provide feedback to that. Uh, but I also do some boots on the ground testing, as right, I said, right. for special projects like Project Overmatch, where I'm actually writing the test plan and, and planning the execution. Um, 
So before I lose track of where we're going with this, the other part. Oh, that's all right. Don't worry about it because I'm. Because <laughs> she's going to edit it out. Well, no, I'm going to take you back. <laughs> okay. We're going to we're going to talk about a couple of different things. So it, it, it's good. Yeah. So there's that part, right? Yeah. Then there's the part where. I am dealing with the external agencies at the Department of the Navy level and at the OSD level in terms of policy. And that can be policy on how TESS is executed. It could be policy related to the T&E workforce. It could be policy um, related to how programs will execute T&E. So uh, I also support a number of working groups, and this all happens every week. There are usually a bunch that's crammed with those kinds of meetings. The other aspect where I spend a lot of time is on the workforce itself. So I am the DEWEA-designated approval authority for all testers, those coded testers, in the Marine Corps. So folks at BMX-1, folks at Marine Corps Systems Command, folks at Mecatea, I will. I'm the person that certifies them, but I also work. So this is training. an annual certification that they're. Well, require. it's it's often more than annual. Really? Yes. So okay. it's about 115 people altogether. So that explains it, because folks don't know this, but my office just around the corner from you, and I see you coming and going and constantly <laughs> coming and going. So this this is kind of shedding light on uh, on uh, where <laughs> Dr. McGrady has been, but. <laughs> Uh, I'm getting a better picture of it now. Let me take you back a little bit because you, you touched on a couple areas. So maybe just to uh, give some folks a, a better clarity, yeah. you deal with Makatea, with DOT&E. Uh, what are those different agencies and they are they unique to the service or can you explain the yes. role a little bit of Makatea, mm-hmm. Vice DOT&E? So Makatea is the Marine Corps' independent evaluator, and I use that term, it's really kind of an Army term, but I like to use it with respect to uh, Makatea. Um, It is the counterpart of OPTEV-4, ATEC, and AFATEC, which is the Air Force version of it. So that is Marine Corps specific, but as, as I think you know, Mm -hmm. in joint programs, Makatea can be a partner as part of the operational test team. DOT&E is a different animal. <laughs> it's the big, the big right, guy, right? right? So DOT&E reports to the Secretary of Defense and to Congress. And it is the Director of Operational Test and essentially sets the policy and approves operational test plans for all of the OTAs as they are executed. If you're on an oversight list, which I'm sure you've heard, Danny, <laughs> and DOT&E has the discretion to put anybody they want on right. an oversight list, but typically they Very familiar this. with those. Okay. That's the program that I was on. I, <laughs> so I don't need to tell you, yeah, but, no, but I'm, for the I'm purposes s- of this. <laughs> nothing against DOT&E if you're listening, but uh, just trying to get folks to understand that you know, there's oversight throughout, yes. and it starts with the service. We Correct. develop, we build some of our own oversight, and obviously, you know, Congress gives us the money and, and the authority to do some of these right. things, does need to have that arm to provide that additional oversight. Yes. I'm uh, going to jump in, though, and add one more thing to sure. that, is that This is a free-flow conversation. <laughs> so if we're going to make some news, Good. I want it to be broken here. <laughs> well, it's just that times are changing in a lot of ways. Okay. So there is... There is more flexibility for the program manager in in options on how to execute Mm. a program. So we've looked at the adaptive acquisition framework, and everybody has heard of that that supports a program. 
But on the T&E side, that, that kind of adaptability is also applied to some of the hard and fast rules that we used to have um, about what DOT&E does, when they come in, what the timetable is. All of that is kind of getting, uh, I won't say washed away, but relooked, right, and, and adjusted. And so that's a good thing, I think, because we all, I, I think, agree that we, uh, as defense, uh, basically put members of the Department of Defense need to move faster, right. and especially right. in getting right. working gear to our warfighters. And this may be an obvious question, but do you think technology is driving that? How quickly technology is moving? I would say that's uh, part yeah. of it, but I also think our potential adversaries right, and competitors right. are moving much faster than they did even 10 or 15 years ago. Of course, they don't have the layers of protection. And I won't call it bureaucracy. I'll call it uh, requirements, <laughs> yeah, constraints, right, right, right. things of that sort. Right. So, Nor our budgetary processes. True. Can True. also we need to think about a lot of things a right. little bit differently. Right. Where in the acquisition process does testing evaluation fit in? I'll give that... you my answer. Okay. I'm sure there are program managers who do not agree with this, <laughs> but I would say everywhere. Okay. So, and I'll give you. It really needs to TNE needs to be thought of and considered even when you're looking at requests for proposals and an industry day. And in fact. You will see that in the DOD 5000, I'm sorry, DOD SECNAV instruction 5000.2G right. in the form of capabilities-based test and evaluation. So, so I say early, but I also say, I can give you an anecdote, and this is a pretty old one, all the way to even disposal of equipment. So mm -hmm. one of those anecdotes is, I won't say which program it was, it wasn't even a Marine Corps program. But the materials, uh, they had not seen action, right? So they were basically on-the-shelf materials, oh, quite a lot gosh. of it. But it was yeah. cut up and used mm -hmm. and donated for a child's children's playgrounds throughout various states. So there was concern that there was toxic off-gassing mm -hmm. at the time. So I had to, to basically conduct testing. The same kind of testing that I did in the first place before we fielded this <laughs> stuff, right? But it, it, fair enough, after yeah. time, things can happen and off-gassing properties can change. Right, right. But that was in post-disposal of the equipment. Wow. So total life cycle, I would say. Um, and yes, I'll, I'll be happy to address anybody who has to argue with me about it, but it really should be. <laughs> I'll save that for another show. I, <laughs> I'll, I'll bring in a PM and we can have a PM to the uh, yeah, conversation. head to head. So how do you go about developing a test plan? Walk us through the process a little bit. I'm, yes. I'm sure there's a PM aspect of it, you know, yes. the program manager and, and yes. team. The PM has, is, as you know, responsible for cost, schedule, and performance. Mm -hmm. he, he or she is chartered for that. But let's go back to the test question. You should always start with what are the questions we need answered before we can field this thing, right? Field this system. And when do we need the specific answers? So when you start with that, then you start to build the budget. Right, and usually that's your PM is going to tell right. you that it's too too big. Where can so I we take some cut, right, cuts? Uh, right. Yeah, and yeah. still keep the technical rigor. So that's part of the art of test. Right, is to to stay within 
a reasonable budget, but I'll go back one more step and just say, that's why testers should probably be in the beginning so you can put a reasonable bu budget together. But I digress again. <laughs> you start with that, you start building the types of, um, and you have to gain consensus the whole time. You gotta gain the consensus yeah. of your stakeholders. I'm gonna test it this way. These are the metrics, frankly, if you were doing your job well, you'd be talking to the requirements folks and working together with, say, an operational test agency right, right. to figure out what the metrics for those requirements should be and how to write the requirements in a way that they are testable and measurable and all the things that requirements are supposed to be. Then comes really hard work, which is, and for, for ACAP 1 programs, and I have experience mm -hmm. with that, it is an enormous task. It is not only the budget, but then you have to look at the individual facilities that can execute testing. If it's things like live fire, where you're, you know, you have targets that have to be fired, you know, they all of that has to be baked in to your schedule to devise that that test plan that that actually gets you the answers you need to support a milestone B, to support a milestone C to support the selection of, of, a, of a particular vendor, right, um, mm -hmm. from a group of candidates. Right, right. It really depends. But all of that then is followed up with documentation as well. So the test plan itself. It's not done until the paperwork is done. Well, right, and somebody <laughs> signs off on it. Right. And usually the right. somebody is at very least the PM, but for an ACAP 1 program, it could be numerous other folks. Mm -hmm. And that also includes, and I'm going down to the test plan, the temp itself. So the test and evaluation master plan is a requirement. And that is a documentary requirement. And that generally has to be signed off, you know, depending on the ACAT level of the program, fairly high up the chain and by many, many folks with, uh, you know, with, with skin in the game. So I got to stop you there for a minute because I, I think one of the things that, I mean, this is a mountain of a challenge at times. And somebody who spent time on an ACAT 1 program was at a range for a live fire shoot and weather goes bad, something goes wrong. Right. Well, it took us a year to schedule that range. Yeah. And now, you know, so trying to understand the hurdles that uh, the test community uh, at times has to go through. And again, I, my experience was purely with the live fire aspect of right. it, but I'm sure there's a ton of other testing that goes on right. when you do things like uh, reliability growth testing mm -hmm. and all that. You're relying on different locations. You have right. to test some of this capability has to go to Alaska or, mm -hmm. or you know, to the Mojave Desert or wherever the, uh, right. you know, the extremes and elements are. Usually to be able both. to get it to both. Right. Uh, uh, you know, it'll have to be able to weather both yeah. uh, conditions. And that is very frequently the case and can prove to be quite challenging to schedule those kinds of events. I will also say that for the Marine Corps, there are exceptional challenges in that sort of thing because we often get bumped in favor of Army programs. And, and I'll try to leave it at that. If it's an <laughs> Army range, right, we right. will not right. have... Um, we will not have the precedence of an Army program. So the, the best, you know, really the best defense for things like that is to always have a plan B, and I always would have a plan yeah. C, and assume that stuff like that is going to happen. And it's interesting, too, because it's not just other services. 
Mother Nature sometimes oh, yes. has, a, you know, we're trying right. to do amphibious testing off the coast of California and we have to, <laughs> you know, the right. waves aren't coming in at the right. height they were predicted to come in. <laughs> right. So we right. got to go find a place to, uh, you know, find it, it, bigger waves. It is. I think in Yuma, one test that we conducted, they actually experienced a hurricane. This was, which I'd never even thought was possible. Wow. These hurricane force winds and so wow. forth. So that screwed up our, this is in Yuma, Arizona. <laughs> so, so it screwed up uh, an entire um schedule for like a week and a half wow. because the roads were washed out also and the trickle down effect from that i yes. mean if you you know you mess with t and e for a week it yes could ultimately mean six or eight months on the back end if you're not careful well and you can't and make something i up. i would say the most successful testers and probably the folks that always get picked to do the the job you know if there's a, a shortfall are the ones that will figure out how to make that schedule up. And I have had, I certainly had to do that many, many times. But, and it's not me alone, right, it's the right. test managers and the retired Marines and Marines themselves who are absolutely essential to have on your test sites. So they will figure it out for you and you get to take all the credit usually. But that is, that is a fact of life um, for testers is you gotta make it up. Well, you said something uh, that's interesting when you were talking earlier about including everybody in the conversation. Yes. And yeah. when you talk about requirements, I, uh, you know, I, I've seen some engineers do some great stuff, develop great capabilities, and they forget that thing about marine proofing. Right. Or, you know, develop a vehicle, put a certain carrier in, in the vehicle for the weapon to go in, and right. the Marine gets in and says, well, I'd never put my weapon there. Yeah. We've always been, you know, <laughs> right. got to put right. it on this side, not right. that side. So right. uh, so it, it truly is unique and interesting how the whole team has to come together and play. Yes. Let me ask you a question, just uh, speaking on, on teams. I know you've been to a lot of facilities and have done a lot. Your interactions with the Navy, do you work with uh, their testers and a lot of their yes. their labs? Yes. Point Magoo, for example, we've been, I, I'll say it's Navy, but Wallops yeah. Island is really, I think, under Goddard. Oh, okay. Um, yep, yep. So Port Wanimi and, you know, a lot of our, our technical expertise will come from Navy Warfare Centers, just okay. like I did, right. did, you know, long ago now. So yes, there is an enormous amount of interaction with Navy laboratories. The Marine Corps is, it, it, well, is I think unique, right? We don't have but one facility that is ours, that's right. McTissa. Right, right. And we have elements of really the other services. Yes, yes, Army has an Air mm -hmm. Force and it has a, I guess it has a, a maritime capability as well. But, right. but we really integrate that, I think, uh, I would argue better than or more frequently than other services. So with that, that means that we can pull from lots of facilities. Uh, and, and so, you know, we use Aberdeen Proving Ground. We use right. Yuma Proving Ground. We use White Sands. Those are led by the Army. But there are numerous Navy facilities and warfare centers that we use not only for testing, but for technical expertise. And, and ultimately it's, you know, it's probably a great marriage because we, a lot of yeah. our programs are joint. Right. We share a lot of capabilities, cost savings, right. all that great stuff. So, right. so how often do you engage with the fleet? 
as often as I possibly can. So, and that's where I want to make sure I, you know, just this, these are just examples from, so I've been in this position not quite two years, but I came from a program, right? I came from GBAT um, at that time. But I mean, the uh, artillery regiments like uh, 11th and 12th uh, Marine regiments, they're they're at, I think, uh, Camp Pendleton and Okinawa, respectively. Then I've also worked with uh, 3rd Battalion, 8th Marines, that's an infantry battalion at Camp Lejeune. 2nd Maw, Max 1, BMX 1. I can't can't overemphasize the importance of engaging Marine operators, Marines from, from that are going to be using these systems in your test design and in your test execution and then in your test interpretation as well so there isn't there isn't any place where they should not be in in this does it make you think twice maybe take yourself back a little bit when you were a younger scientist (laughs) yeah and i'm not talking about our age at all i'm just saying when we were a little bit younger right but when you thought about what those capabilities meant on the other end now you're literally hand in hand with the other end what does it make you feel like when you talk to these young marines and talk about the capabilities and stuff so i'll try not to get misty all right i I didn't bring any tissues so we're on our own here but Uh, we've had so i'll try not to say the program but um we had quite a a challenge just as an example the marines were were evaluating our system and this particular unit and they hated it absolutely freaking hated it so I just to understand try to understand why they hate this is like the 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 greatest advancement since sliced bread what are you talking about (laughs) (laughs) how can you not love this thing right and it it took a while but but I fi- it finally made sense to me what they were trying to say to me how they operated mm-hmm. how they worked why it was important to be able to to set up and take it down right. and move right. things that I didn't understand until I talked to them so it's kind of not really answering your question I, I cannot think of a more important job to do than this and I don't mean just test and evaluation I mean putting working gear in the hands of our Marines I'll stop now because I get emotional about it we're, we're passionate you know Marines are passionate about what they do and they're passionate on both ends they're passionate yes. when something doesn't work yes and they're passionate when they don't want to change right well that's until the, they're that's shown the, that they can change that's but, right but no it, it truly is something amazing to see because Look, at the end of the day, we want to build lethality, and mm-hmm. uh, every Marine terrible. will. Right. Every Marine will tell you they don't want to use lethality; they just yes. want to be able to have lethality. That's right. Because having that lethality will ensure that hopefully they'll come home. Yes. Safe. So, I mean, kudos to to what you do, and thank you. Kudos to the understanding that uh, it's nothing wrong with being emotional, given the fact that it's. You see where it ends up at. Well, you see the yes. hands that that take That's it right. to do what it needs to be done. Right. So, and how important uh, what they do is to just us, right? To the United States, to the Republic, to all of it, right? So it is um, that is in itself, and there are plenty of technical challenges to overcome, but there are also 
the programmatic challenges, there are the challenges of communication between folks that are technically oriented. And frankly, many, many Marines are technically oriented. That was the other thing I was, that I finally learned, right? This kid's smarter than me yeah. <laughs> and, and actually understands this system better than I do. Um, it is it is humbling. Frankly. I have three kids and they're all smarter than me. So <laughs> I, you know, so that maybe that's not saying much. I don't know, but uh, and, and we make this analogy all the time. I mean, today's young marine is born with an iPad or a tablet right. in their hand, right. so right. they're already coming in the game right. a little smarter than than many of us right. at some point in time. And I, I think I told my daughter this the other day because you know I have a grandchild. I think they're. <gasps> Yeah. They're programmed differently. They're wired yes. differently already. They can do three things at once. I struggle right. with doing one thing at once. So They can't uh, use a slide rule, though. Yeah, <laughs> there is that. Uh, let me focus a little bit on uh, what, are, what are some of the challenging things that you have to overcome? And can, you know, yeah. and we don't have to be specific to programs, but right. just to give us an idea of uh, some moments in time that uh, are a little more challenging than others. So the, the next great thing, a system that is incredible and cutting edge from technology perspective, you may not get enough of them in time right. for you to, to design a statistically relevant test, right? So it's great to have a notion about a system's performance, but having only one system doesn't really address, right, whether or not that is gonna be a consistent performance that every Marine or, or can rely on, right. right? So that's always a big problem, is the production of, to my mind anyway, sufficient systems for us to, to test. Um, every program I've ever been on, there's always there's always unexpected delays, right, and right. you have to work around that to be able to test it. Um, other challenges, as I as I say, and you hit the nail on the head, Manny, is that often you have Marines that will um, have a preconceived notion, and and it's worked for them, right? So they don't want to deviate from that right. until somehow the light goes on and you have to get to that place, right? right. And not listening to them or, or uh, you know, ignoring what their concerns are is not the way to get to, to a place where they are actually part of the design process. Um, and, and we make modifications, right, to, that has to be done judiciously though, right? right? One Marine, making those decisions may not satisfy the needs of all the Marines that are with his particular, his or her MOS or in their unit. So that has to be done with, with care. Um, those aren't really technical challenges per se. Uh, technical challenges, uh, you know, that come from some of this is uh, also feeling confident that you have a great relationship with the vendor, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the uh, contractor that's actually producing right. the commodity. Um, you know, in joint programs, it has been consistently an issue of their mission and what they do is different than perhaps right. the, de the developer or the lead service in it. So there's JLTV was a great example oh, yes. of that. Uh, it was. The Army had some missions. We have some, you know, right. similar missions, different. Right. Uh, and really, I think that was a great example of them when the two service vice chiefs came together and yes. had a conversation and said, okay, let's sit down at the table and what can we compromise on? Right. Uh, and, and I think the program uh, 
is proven itself out. So. Yeah, I, I have to say while I was there, I worked very closely with the Army uh, T&E director, mm -hmm. and that was essential. Um, but I will, uh, I, I think you also have to, you know, consider from the other kinds of challenges, right? It's budget is always a challenge, right? right? right. So um, it's very hard to make predictions about a total cost for test. It, there is so much to leading test, and frankly, I'm gonna bring this up anyway. We have such a small contingent of folks willing to be testers, right, right. In, in our command that it's often, you know, it's, it's concentrated in, wow. on one person, right? One of the, the difficult things about being a tester is that you don't always have good news. Right? And right, right. <laughs> you have to let the data, yeah. you know. But having said that, data lies sometimes, right? If your test design wasn't a good one or you, your interpretation was flawed or you chose the right approach or, or you chose the wrong approach or method, right. then you have to be you have to be constantly second guessing yourself. If I see somebody that somebody that is absolutely confident in every point of the program, I start to get suspicious about <laughs> about them, and yeah. and that's because I think the nature of science and engineering is to continually question. So, uh, and, and again, I mean, you don't question for the sake of question. Let's talk no. safety for uh, yeah. for a minute. So. I know there's safety in everything we do. We, we have a safety yes. division. How much do you interact with safety and what role does it play in, in So the, quite a lot, okay. right? So uh, it, when we are using marine participants or human participants, um, there is there are quite a few, um, I'll say gates, right, mm -hmm. that have to be, to be gone through. Even down to administering a survey to Marines, which, which can be a, a very, you know, it can be a, a, an effective tool in getting an idea, right? Even in that case, there is, a, safety has to be involved in that. There, you have to have a PM signed safety release when you employ test participants. I will say though, we've had once or twice uh, in situations where a subsequent operational test, where you might find out that um, there needed to be more training with respect okay. to to safety, and right, that's kind right. of the place you go to, to let to let our safety office know um, that that was an issue, right? Uh, you get to an operational test, and there's a safety measure the Marines didn't even know about it in their training, their net training. So right. that has happened, mm -hmm. and and for, we've been mostly fortunate. I have been a test director where there was an uh, an unfortunate event at a test site, but it was a remote one. And it was a it was a rough time for everyone in the program because we did not know what had actually happened. Oh. It turned out at the end that it had nothing to do with the system or the test itself. But um, but there were about I don't know 48 hours where we didn't we didn't know the details. In those cases, it makes it clear that you really have to document and adhere to all the safety regulations and also understand where people are on a test site. So that's another piece of that, right? It's, it's inherent in everything that you do as a tester. And when you go to new sites, you can rely, some, some, for example, at Yuma or at Wismer, you could rely in part 
on the safety uh, infrastructure that they have there, mm -hmm. right? They're not going to let you fire certain things right, outside of right. their protocols or position systems or personnel. But you're also, it's a level of responsibility for the tester because they're responsible for the management of that site and where people are and all that all that stuff and what their exposures are and et cetera, et cetera. Right. So it is, there's a lot of responsibility. And as I'm sure you know, we can have upwards of well over 100 people at a test site for which uh, the lead may be responsible. So I must confess, you know, many, many years ago, I was that young Marine on the other end saying, what yeah. were they thinking, you know? I, mean, <laughs> right. I could have designed something that worked better than this. And uh, yeah. of course, now I'm on, on this end, the last 15 years or so, and a whole new appreciation of the, the rigor, the testing. Right. So this is a major accomplishment for me because just saying the word test would bring me jitters because, you know, not a great test taker. So, right, right. But, uh, but I, I think we barely scratched the surface on, on the detail, the rigor, the science that goes into this. And I want to touch on science a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, you're a woman in STEM. We've always struggled over the years uh, getting young lady. My daughter participated yeah. in STEM. Yeah. So uh, what would you say to the young ladies out there paying attention to the work that you're doing? So I think, um, yeah, I'm, so I'm so old that I remember oh, that geez, I was here like, we but, go. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd be the only per female in our research group and, um, and that would carry on Right. as I went into my uh, research career and then into government. However, that has changed significantly. Mm -hmm. um, I would say over the last two decades, you see many, many, many more women. Um, I think, you know, I'll say this, I say this a lot, especially to my own daughter and to, and to young women. I used to be a chemistry professor okay. for a while as well before I, before I decided to postdoc, go back to research. And you would see that often, that, that, that young women would be saying, I'm really not good at this. Mm -hmm. It's not something that, I don't know, you absorb, or I know there are folks that think you're born with it. It, it is really a question of, do you want to do it? And mm -hmm. if you do, you can. It's a right, skill. Right. It can be acquired. Just math can, that is a skill that can be acquired and so can science. Problem for many women, I think, is that they have this, this notion of it didn't come to me immediately, so this isn't for me. But they should rethink that because the rewards of this kind of work are substantial. And, and just not only in self-satisfaction of having been able to solve problems, mm -hmm but also in you know what the end result is as i said and i kind of started this conversation with you right. about is that you are impacting the development of equipment that can continue to keep us um, in a position of dominance mm -hmm. and security yeah. right and so i would say to them come one come all right uh, if you even have the notion that you could be interested in this yes it requires discipline and there's a lot of boredom involved right. but there's also great um, uh, compensation in many ways and that compensation can be satisfaction in the job you do 
the 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 self fulfillment of figuring out the mystery and solving mm-hmm. the problem itself, right. I think, is 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 worth quite a bit. So you work with the engineers here, uh, and they come from many disciplines. What are yes. some of your focus areas that people are looking to that we need take on this challenge? Right. Yes, not so. that this is a recruiting opportunity, but if you're listening <laughs> and you want to come see us, uh, yeah. <laughs> so we do really need uh, software development folks, folks that yeah. can test software, understand agile methods, and that is proving to be quite a, a challenge. Yeah. Um, to to really bring those folks in, um, cybersecurity testing very big, and we're just we just seem to be crawling along. Uh, when I was at OSD on an assignment, I was there for probably eighteen months. Um, I led a, a, a cybersecurity test, even though I'm a chemist, because they just <laughs> didn't have anybody else they could yeah. right. But a tester is often a tester in any commodity, which right. is the other thing you can. You can. You know the discipline, right. so you want to, yeah. Right, and, but it also allows you a, a break, right? Mm-hmm. It allows you to try things relatively easily. I say that judiciously, but it does allow you to kind of break free and look into other commodity areas and get that that uh, that piece. There's always an interest in material uh, material scientists and, and engineers that mm-hmm. have an understanding of materials and their properties. Electrical engineers are almost always, in, and I'll say one more, uh, chemical engineers I think are well suited to the, the kinds of design work um, that you see uh, the Department of Defense has an interest in. Right. They're always interested in advanced materials as an example. Now, acquisition-wise, I always advocate for people going and getting their technical work. Mm-hmm. Don't just graduate, although I know that's going to be anathema here. Someone's going to get mad. <laughs> Don't graduate from engineering school and go right into acquisition. Spend some time at a warfare center or a laboratory and do, do engineering and do science. And then you can do what I did, right, right. and say, I want to get closer to where the action is and, and where we can actually be at the end of handing this off to, to Marines. A continuing desire to you know, solve the next problem. Right. Uh, and, and where does that problem lead to? Right. Well, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. I, I would ask you just one more question. Sure. Uh, what would you say to the young engineer who's looking to work at Syscom? And I think you've kind of touched on that. Don't come right us out of school, but... Yes, but come anyway. <laughs> right? So, so We'll get that information work. out to them. <laughs> well, and that's uh, the thing. It is great work. I can't say enough how meaningful I think it is. I, I know that there are attractive options in industry, right, and, and right. you know that's one of our problems sometimes. Right. But, but to me, there's more to life, right, than, than the paycheck, I'll say that. It is what, you, what you're delivering and who you're delivering it to and the cause you support. So I feel with good conscience I can say that this is noble work. That's and, awesome. I, I, there's a lot of conversations going around today's younger generation that, and I may be wrong, but they're not all looking at the dollar, the right. bottom line dollar. They're looking at something that's going to be fruitful and productive. So, right. Uh, and meaningful. We all have our adventures that we want to go out and see, and <laughs> right. this perhaps could be one one in itself. So, yes. Dr. Karen McGrady, thank you so much for thank taking you. the time. But before I let you go, we have a 
segment in the program we like to call the lightning round. Uh-oh. Are you ready for some tough I questions? So. <laughs> All right, let me give them to you. What's your favorite vacation spot? St. Augustine, Florida. Yeah, very nice. I yeah. Spend a little time there. As long as you didn't say one of the test sites or something, I get a, <laughs> no. I get a little concerned here. Uh, what's a TV show, book, a movie, or a podcast you'd recommend? Uh, I just finished Call Sign Chaos by General oh, okay. Mattis, yep. and I thought, well, it was great. Yep. It, it uh, gave you some insight into him, and yeah. That's awesome. I, I actually have read that, so that was a good book. If you weren't doing what you're doing now, what would you be doing? I think I would it's be... a play a, on words. I carry that on for quite a bit. <laughs> Besides dancing with the stars. Yes. I think uh, <laughs> there was some singing in your background. Yes, we, yes. we might have caught a little bit of that. <laughs> I, I'd be an archaeologist. Really? Yes, oh, yes. Fascinating. Yeah. So always digging around to solve that mystery. I, I, I just... I right. hope you like how I tied all that together to there. I'll look like some uh, old character after I retire <laughs> digging. <laughs> uh, listen, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? So I, I think it would be uh, to understand in real time the another other f- folks, right? Mm-hmm. So completely, uh, perfect understanding with. Uh, minimum requirement for words and I would like to be able to have them at my whim understand me as well (laughs) so I guess it's a comms question again or as one marine told me now long ago Dr. McGrady it's all about the relationships absolutely (laughs) absolutely I'm still trying to decipher how I get to know my my you know my team and Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm trying to create some power so that they can know what I need before I have to ask it. Listen, Dr. McGrady, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. And hopefully some engineers out there are paying attention and they'll come see you. Yes. Thanks. Awesome. Have a Thank great you, day. sir. Well, this concludes another episode of Equipping the Corps. I hope you've enjoyed our conversation today. If so, please take a couple minutes, leave us a review, subscribe, tell your friends about us. Till next time, Manny Pacheco signing off.